good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it happens to be when you are tuning into this episode of Focus on Facts. I'm Eric Sussman, and glad to reconnect with you once again to discuss the F word. No, not that F word, the one often heard on the 405 freeway here in Southern California, at least before COVID, the one muttered by any number of students looking over this week's deliverables in one of my MBA electives, but fraud. Earlier this week, there was a front page article in the Wall Street Journal about a gentleman named Robert Brockman, a Houston software entrepreneur accused of a $2 billion tax fraud. And last weekend, while reading something on my Twitter feed, I had the distinct displeasure of being introduced to 43-year-old Mark Cooper, a Fort Worth osteopath who was sentenced last Thursday to 10 years in federal prison for his role in a $10 million healthcare fraud. The best part of the story regarding Dr. Cooper involved his wife, Melissa, who ended up burning down their home while she was trying to destroy implicating evidence. Hoops, financial fraud, meet the Keystone Cops. And then I just started thinking about how there seems to be this never-ending pattern of fraud over and over and over again that I have encountered in both my personal and professional lives. So Mr. Brockman, Dr. Cooper, and his dutiful, if arson-challenged wife join an extraordinarily lengthy and auspicious list of fraudsters that I have taught about in my various accounting and financial reporting courses, or I have met as an expert witness in accounting-related matters. From the South Sea bubble in the early 18th century to Charles Ponzi in the first quarter of the 20th century, who, my gosh, has a whole scheme named after him, to ZZZ Best and Barry Minko, a two-time fraudster I can't help but discuss and will shortly, to Bernie Madoff, to Enron, to MCI WorldCom, to Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, to Wells Fargo, to Volkswagen and Dieselgate, to parents cheating to get their kids into college, to Luck and Coffee, a large Chinese fraud that unraveled during the first half of last year, only to be followed by Wirecard, the largest accounting fraud in German history that unraveled just a few months later during the last part of 2020, to PPP loan fraud. Well, we are about to take a journey through time and geography, which you can think of as a really sad and pathetic Rick Steves travel guide to financial fraud. Not just what has happened or why, but why it seems to repeat itself and what lessons seem not to be learned. What are the signs, quantitative and qualitative, that investors, regulators, and others should look for? What are the things that should be changed to reduce its occurrence? Now, some of you might be asking right off the bat whether financial fraud is becoming a bigger or smaller problem over time. It's a great question, but hard to say as the data seems mixed. On the one hand, the number of enforcement actions pursued by our Securities and Exchange Commission is flat to slightly down since 2003, a good thing. The number of securities-related class action lawsuits alleging financial misconduct, however, is actually higher in recent years. For example, 428 such cases were filed in state and federal courts in 2019, the most on record, and nearly twice the average between 1997 and 2018. Frankly, I believe this single podcast may and perhaps should evolve into an entire series of episodes covering various frauds, if just because some of them involve such compelling characters and stories on their own. 
In fact, I think I could devote several podcasts just on Barry Minko, a name I mentioned earlier, but that many of you probably don't know or remember. In fact, Mr. Minko, or perhaps I should say Pastor Minko, was my first introduction to fraud and perhaps started my fascination with the topic. So let's put on our bathing suits, or not, for our weekly or bi-weekly dip into our hot tub time machine. Sorry, but I just can't resist. So back to the early 1980s we go when I was still in high school and was captivated by this fellow named Barry Minko. Barry Minko is about my age back then, 15 or 16, when he founded a carpet cleaning company, ZZZ Best, in his family's garage, a garage that was not too far from where I grew up. By the time he was 21 in January of 1986, Minko had taken his company public and ZZZ Best was listed on the NASDAQ. At that time, he was the youngest person to lead a company through an IPO in all of American history. It's no wonder I was fascinated by him and maybe was a tad jealous. I can still remember the ZZZ Best TV ads, which you can probably find on YouTube, which featured Minko and a red Ferrari he owned. At its peak, he was worth $100 million in 1980-ish currency values. However, there was one itsy-bitsy problem, and that is that 90% of the company's purported customers were fake. Seven months after going public, ZZ Best collapsed, and Minko, along with 10, yes, 10 other insiders, were indicted by a Los Angeles grand jury. Minko was sentenced to 25 years in prison, of which he served seven and a half years, during which he became, wait for it, a born-again Christian, and after his release, he became a pastor in a San Diego-based church and became, wait for it, a fraud consultant creating the Fraud Discovery Institute, a non-profit investigative firm. Kind of makes sense. Who better to serve as a consultant to identify, prevent, and consult on fraud than a fraudster? Talk about turning adversity into gain. But the story doesn't end there. Ultimately, Minko and his new fraud consulting venture did uncover some frauds, and he soon attracted the attention of the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg News, and began appearing on various business news programs as a fraud expert until, wait for it, he was again accused of committing fraud and embezzling $3 million from his church. Apparently, either old habits die hard, or some people believe they really, really look good in orange jumpsuits. He was sentenced to five more years in prison and released in 2019. So the first takeaway from this episode of Focus on Facts is that you have all been warned. If Barry Minko shows up preaching at a church near you, you know what to do. Run, Forrest, run! Anyhow, if I asked all of you the most basic of questions as to why fraud continues to happen, I know what most of you will say. Oh, come on, Professor Sussman, that's a softball. Humans are inherently greedy by nature, and some folks just can't help themselves. Okay, so maybe that philosopher Thomas Hobbes had it right, with his deeply pessimistic view of humans and human nature. Ah, that liberal arts education pays off again. So let's say we all agree that financial fraud is simply inevitable because of human nature and that we just need to accept that a subset of us, not us meaning focus on friend supporters, of course, but some good old humans are wired to steal to commit fraud. 
But why do we seemingly allow history to repeat itself? Why aren't regulators or financial watchdogs like the Securities and Exchange Commission able to identify it earlier and prevent it? What about auditors, the Price Waterhouse Coopers and Ernst and Youngs of the world? Financial analysts and investment bankers, institutional investors, the media. Well, before we go any further, I want to talk a little bit more about the wire card fraud out of Germany, which I mentioned earlier because it adds some interesting twists for us to think about, and it just happened last year, becoming the MCI WorldCom for Germany, the largest accounting fraud in that country's history, an inauspicious award to say the least. Let me summarize the key details of this fascinating, if sad, sad story. Wirecard was a German electronic payments company that appeared to have grown steadily over the last 20 years. In the summer of 2020, it was revealed that some $2 billion of cash the company supposedly owned was missing. Poof! David Copperfield meet Wirecard. The CEO, Marcus Braun, resigned and was arrested, and the company declared bankruptcy two days later. The company's chief operating officer, Jan Marsalek, is missing and remains a fugitive. Rumor has it that he is either hiding in Russia or is hanging out with Barry Minko down in San Diego. Anyhow, the fact that the COO is on the run and missing is interesting, but not the thing I find most interesting and curious about the story. Here's the part of the story that makes me stop and say, hmm... Germany's equivalent of the Securities and Exchange Commission, BaFin, I won't even try to pronounce the full name in German, and we should all be grateful for that, had been repeatedly warned over a period of years that Wirecard was not all it was purported to be, and that the company's accounting was, to put it in academic terms, bogus. In fact, BaFin had received detailed warnings about deceptive financial practices at Wirecard starting back in, listen to this, 2008, but repeatedly declined to investigate the allegations and instead turned against the accusers. Documents indicate that Boffin saw Wirecard CEO as more trustworthy than his critics. In an amazing twist, Wirecard complained about two former officials of the Small Shareholders Association in Germany who had openly complained about the company's finances at that time, back in 2008, and who had actually filed a lawsuit against Wirecard, alleging that the company was using customer deposits as its own cash, among other allegations. Well, not only did Boffin not look into the allegations, they opened a probe into the individuals who filed the suit, whom were ultimately charged, convicted of market manipulation, and handed suspended prison sentences. In another instance, two short sellers accused the company in 2016 of money laundering, and fraud, stating that the German company's failure to answer difficult questions raised, quote, more red flags than you'd see at a communist rally. Boffin's response? A 45-page report accusing 37 short sellers of market manipulation. And finally, in October of 2019, the Financial Times ran a front-page story entitled, Wirecard's Suspect Accounting Practices Revealed. Now you're thinking, okay, that has to do it. A front page story in the Financial Times? Nope. True to form, Boffin opened its third investigation into possible market manipulation by short sellers of Wirecard stock 
and then banned investors from shorting the stock entirely and handed its evidence to Munich prosecutors who launched a case against several traders and two journalists. Until 2020, when the company's auditors, Ernst & Young, finally, publicly, and officially stated that $2 billion was uh, missing. It's amazing that Boffin didn't seek the arrest of the auditors. Now, some of you might be saying, hey, that's a really great and interesting story, Professor Sussman, but our financial regulators are different. That wouldn't happen in the U.S. Well, I have two words for you, Enron and Madoff. So indulge me with two quick anecdotes before we get into the whys and how to possibly address the problem. After the Enron story broke, the SEC publicly acknowledged during subsequent congressional hearings that it had not reviewed any of Enron's publicly filed documents or financial statements since the company had gone public 10 years earlier. Not one. Now, admittedly, that was some 20 years ago, and perhaps things have changed, and I think they have, as we will discuss in a bit, but there remains plenty of room for improvement. And Bernie Madoff, the perpetrator of the largest Ponzi scheme and financial fraud in U.S. history, something like $65 billion, well, I'm not sure how many of you have heard of a gentleman named Harry Markopoulos, probably very few, or some of you are thinking that the name sounds familiar and wondering what team he played for. Well, Harry Markopoulos was a former securities industry executive and a forensic accounting and a financial fraud investigator. Truly a person after my own heart. Be still. Anyhow, from 1999 to 2008, Markopoulos uncovered evidence that Madoff's wealth business was a Ponzi scheme and that there was no way he could actually be generating the returns he claimed given the strategy he supposedly employed. And here's where things get revealing and super disappointing. In 2000, 2001, and 2005, Markopoulos alerted the SEC of his view, supplying supporting documentation. And how did the SEC respond? Well, they filed the documents submitted by Markopoulos in the proverbial blue bin. In other words, ignored him, and the Madoff Ponzi scheme did not unravel for three more years. Okay, well, if financial fraud is just something that people individually and collectively are going to engage in, at least some, which the evidence overwhelmingly seems to indicate, should we just accept it as part of our capitalistic financial markets? Or can we do something more about it to at least minimize its incidence? Well, where should we start? I'd like to start with the auditors, of which I used to be one, having worked at Pricewaterhouse many, many moons ago. Clearly, many of the failures happen with the outside auditors who fail to detect fraud until it's too late. How the Ernst & Young auditors missed the wire card fraud for so many years in light of so many red flags and allegations remains to be understood, but Ernst & Young is hardly alone here. All of the large accounting firms have dropped the ball at one point or another. Well, if I were to ask you to close your eyes, and again, please don't do this if you are driving, but if I asked you to close your eyes and picture, to imagine what the wire card audit team from Ernst & Young looked like if they were standing before you, what would they look like? What do you think their average ages would be? 
Unfortunately, I could not find any industry data, but having been an audit manager and having sat on several audit committees in my career, I would guesstimate that the average age of a member of the audit team for any large public company would be in the mid to late 20s, perhaps closer to the mid than the late. In other words, young, like too young, I think. And their educational and professional backgrounds, likely undergraduate degrees in accounting, of course. Well, why is this important? Well, stop and think of any public company and their business models or segments. Wirecard, FinTech, an electronic payments service provider. How many members of the Wirecard audit team had significant background, education, or training in the electronic payments or FinTech industry? They may know their debits and credits, good old journal entries, but do most of the staff members really understand their clients' operations, strategy, the competitive landscape? I think the answer is probably rhetorical. Finally, tight deadlines. Here in the U.S., company annual reports, or Form 10-Ks, are due two to two and a half months after the end of a particular fiscal year, which sounds like a lot of time, but it really isn't if you think about large firms operating all around the globe. And don't forget that the quarterly filings, generally due 40 to 45 days following the end of any quarter, are not even audited at all, but merely reviewed, a much lower standard of inquiry and investigation. I have given a lot of thought as to what can be done to address shortcomings or deficiencies in auditors in the auditing process, so here are a few of my thoughts. One, Require annual training in fraud detection and greater industry-specific training for audit staff assigned to specific companies. Assigned to the Wirecard audit, every staff member needs to complete a course on electronic payment processing and fintech. Assigned to audit Disney, a course in entertainment accounting-related issues. Two, expand the requirements for quarterly reviews. I realize that full-blown audits of quarterly results are impractical, but it should be required that auditors expand the scope of quarterly reviews. Most investors don't even realize that the quarterly numbers aren't audited, or even that the quarterly results are disseminated via press release. And these press releases contain different financial information and disclosures depending on the company. I believe that all quarterly press releases must include complete financial statements, not just a subset of them or condensed versions. Three, all firms must use software tools, including artificial intelligence, to evaluate any public company's reported financial results, comparing these results not only to the company's historical figures, but to those reported by competitors with the goal of identifying statistical outliers, results that seem at odds with industry norms. Auditors would then need to investigate and document how they addressed these statistical outliers. In fact, based on what I have read, it seems to me that the wire card fraud may have been detected far earlier if this had been done, because it seems that the company was reporting numbers that were out of whack, that is, much better than their competitors. Now, one recommendation that has been floated, but I think would be a mistake, is to require audit rotations where new audit firms must be hired every so often, say, once every 10 years. I think that this is not just impractical, but would actually increase the risk of financial fraud due to the loss of audit team knowledge and experience with a particular client. 
and any new firm's need to get up to speed is just too daunting and risky. What about the SEC and regulators? Well, since the huge failures of Enron and Bernie Madoff, legislators and the SEC have made real strides, and they should be noted. But more work remains to be done, and I gather even the SEC has acknowledged this reality. One thing you may not realize is just how extensively the Securities and Exchange Commission relies on whistleblowers, and since 2011, they have been compensated quite significantly for their help. Through the end of last year, the SEC has paid out, listen to this, $562 million to 106 individuals who whistleblew, including the largest award of $114 million paid to one anonymous individual. Crime may not pay, but reporting it sure might. The process of rewarding whistleblowers came out of the Dodd-Frank legislation in 2010 and is a positive step, in my opinion, because whistleblowing is something we should encourage, at least in theory, though I don't understand the need for massive payouts. I assume some reasonable cap would still encourage the whistleblowing. Moreover, it's a bit disheartening to think that our top enforcement agency has to rely so heavily on whistleblowers instead of its own proactive efforts. Imagine if they capped payouts at, let's say, $25 million dollars. Some $90 million paid out to that one tipster could have been used to hire a heck of a lot of enforcement officers for a heck of a lot of years. So what are my recommendations regarding the Securities and Exchange Commission? Well, to start, they are very similar to those I mentioned regarding auditors in terms of better, sustained, and more focused training on fraud and industry-specific issues. I always remember what Wayne Gretzky, the greatest hockey player of all time, once said, that it's not where the puck has been, but where it's going. So the SEC needs to realize that digital payments and remittances, peer-to-peer financing and crowdfunding, cryptocurrency and blockchain or distributed ledger applications, what we discussed in my last podcast, are going to change the fraud landscape, and they need to be ahead of, or at least stay parallel with this reality. They need to plan invest, and train accordingly. Two, greater investments in technology. I understand the SEC has invested in such technology, but it's unclear how much they have invested, what they're actually doing, and so forth. All I could find publicly was this one tidbit from a single report. Quote, in addition to traditional case sources, the division took a proactive, risk-based analytical approach to identifying potential violations including risk-based data analytics to uncover potential accounting and disclosure violations, end quote. I think they can and should be more transparent in this regard. They may not want to give away their special sauce, but they should tell us the taxpayers and ultimate beneficiaries of their efforts more. Three, yes, cap those whistleblower payouts. As I said, I am 100% behind the program, but don't see how payouts over, say, $25 million create additional motivation to report wrongdoing. Give me a break. Four, accelerate the pace of investigations. The median time that it takes the SEC to file court actions against bad actors is 21.6 months, so nearly two years. While this is actually an improvement over recent years, it is just too darn slow, especially in this wired world. In some cases, it took more than three years to complete investigations. Again, that's just too long. The SEC needs to invest greater resources, even outside experts, to streamline this process. 
while shortening the time that accused wrongdoers have to respond to inquiries and investigations. Five, hire more of my students, more MBAs. None of my students, at least to my knowledge, in 26 years has ever gone to work at the Security and Exchange Commission. And frankly, I don't think they have ever recruited at UCLA Anderson, if any other business school. MBAs and students with that kind of experience could be valuable assets to the organization. Finally, punishments and fines need to be more significant. Perhaps a particular anecdote will highlight the issue here. On August 7th, 2018, Elon Musk sent a tweet some of you may remember. Quote, I'm considering taking Tesla private at $420, funding secured, end quote. As a result of that tweet, Tesla's stock rose sharply, about 6%. Well, as it turns out, funding wasn't secured, and after an investigation, the SEC forced Elon Musk out as Tesla chairperson and required him to personally pay a $20 million fine, which was matched by Tesla, who also paid $20 million. The company appointed two independent directors, and Elon Musk agreed to have his tweets, quote, reviewed by Tesla's in-house counsel. Now, forgive me, but $20 million paid by Elon Musk and $20 million paid by Tesla, I believe, is something akin to chicken feed, like us paying a $50 parking ticket. Fines should have teeth. Fine, let's talk briefly about investment banks, as they have a role to play in this whole fraud drama as well. One of the things that has always troubled me is the relationship between analysts at investment banks, the Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley's of the world, and they're perhaps lesser known peers like Jeffries or Roth Capital. You know, the folks who issue buy, sell, or hold recommendations on particular company stocks. They work right alongside the underwriters or capital markets personnel who help these same clients or companies go public or raise capital via stock or bond issuances. The potential for significant conflicts of interest is obvious. I mean, can you imagine being an investment banker, approaching a company to help them raise capital while the firm's analyst, one of your colleagues, has a sell recommendation on the company's stock? That pitch is likely to be a complete dud, probably dead on arrival. Now, the 2002 Sarbanes-Oxley legislation and subsequent regulations issued by FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, did require analysts to more transparently disclose conflicts of interest and did impose other means to try and create some separation between analysts and underwriters. For example, regulations, quote, prohibit promises of favorable research and analyst participation in solicitation of investment banking business and roadshows, end quote. But based on all I see and read, I remain very dubious as to how this is actually being enforced. Let's face it, you can have all the rules and regulations that you want, but unless there's actual enforcement, it means very little. And of course, banks may not make explicit promises that quid for the quo as to the analyst recommendations and underwriting pitches, but I think that can be done easily enough with some winks and some nods and the most basic understanding as to how the game is played. I tried to research how many companies going public have buy recommendations issued by their lead underwriter analysts, either preceding or following an IPO or secondary offering, but I could not find any. So I will go out on a proverbial limb to say it is very close to 100%. 
Perhaps there should simply be restrictions on analysts issuing any recommendation on the stocks for which the bank does business, or at least for some period of time preceding or following any offering in which they participate as bankers or underwriters. Last but not least, I believe ethics should be required training in all professional schools, business, law, and medicine, if not others. At UCLA Anderson, we offer one single elective course in the spring of each year, but that's it. Perhaps requiring students to take an entire class is overdoing it, but schools should require some minimum amount of hours devoted to ethics. Now, before I sign off on this episode of Focus on Facts, I'd like to do one last thing, and that's to tell you a very personal story regarding financial fraud. I've only mentioned this story to a few folks and never so publicly as this. It's not necessarily a story I like to tell, but with some 28 years of reflection, I am ready to do so. I just need a couch for my Focus on Friends therapy session, so I hope you'll indulge me. After graduating from business school, I went to work for an individual who was sponsoring real estate investments, exactly what our firm Clear Capital does today. But he was also making what are known as hard money loans, not exactly the most appealing name to describe them. They were essentially high-risk and high-interest-rate loans made to borrowers who were unable to source capital from traditional sources. They are absolutely legal, if not a bit unsavory, like the payday lenders, I suppose. Anyhow, not long after I began working for this individual and his company, I suppose I could say his name publicly because he's no longer alive, but out of an abundance of caution, I will refrain from doing so. But anyhow, I noticed some things that were improper and irregular about his business, that he appeared to be running a Ponzi scheme. Essentially, he had made certain loans or invested in certain projects that were failing or in default, which was not altogether surprising following the significant recession that Southern California endured in the late 80s and early 90s. Anyhow, he had not only failed to disclose the status of these troubled properties to investors, he was shifting money from different places to continue distributions, in some cases using new money to do so, or moving money around from projects that were successful to those that were not, all without disclosing this reality to investors. I have to tell you that it's a very strange thing to discover that someone you are working for has been committing fraud. But there I was, a newly minted MBA, confronted with the realization that the world I thought I had entered and the person and firm I was working for were houses of cards. But I knew what I had to do, and I whistle blew on him. I notified several of his largest investors, many of whom were in complete disbelief, at least initially. I imagine it is a common reaction of anyone in that situation. You really don't want to admit that you've been duped. Well, fast forward two years, my employer filed bankruptcy, pled guilty to wire and mail fraud, and lost his CPA license, while his investors lost millions of dollars. And this professor slash podcaster lost his very first job after business school. Of course, looking back, I am grateful because I am doing my own thing, which ultimately became Clear Capital. So maybe Barry Minko and I have something in common after all. We turned adversity into gain. Oh, and I guess I should tell you that I didn't get $114 million or anything at all. There was no whistleblowing rewards paid out back then, and such it is. 
So there's my very personal story regarding financial fraud and maybe why I was compelled for any number of reasons to release this particular episode. And I hope that you've gotten something from it. With that, I want to wish each and every one of you a good morning, afternoon, or evening, whatever time of day it happens to be when you are listening into this episode of Focus on Facts. I remain very grateful for your support, and I look forward to reconnecting with you soon.